all of us, we can turn in our Bibles to the book of Haggai. The minor prophet book of Haggai is where we have been. We started this study last week. We had an intro last week. If you don't have your own Bible, uh, there are some that are in the chairs uh, in front of you, if you happen to have a chair in front of you. Uh, and you'll notice we put the page number up there because Haggai is one of those small little books that if you're just sort of flipping, you, you can miss it very quickly. It's only a few pages in our Bibles. While you're turning there and, and doing that, I'll remind you that the book of Haggai is one of those three post-exilic books that are found in our Bibles, particularly uh, one of the three that are found in the minor prophets. And, and by post-exilic, we mean after the period of exile, where the nation of Judah was taken into exile by an enemy empire, the Babylonians, and the people were led out of Jerusalem to a foreign land. And there they remained for a period of about 70 years. Uh, but eventually, as God said they would, they made their way back to the land of Jerusalem, to the land of Israel, uh, and began to kind of reestablish themselves once more. And the theme or, or the subject matter of the book of Haggai is about that post-exile return to the land. So it is important for us to remember that. Uh, I like history. I know a lot of people aren't big history fans necessarily, but there, there's an, a value to learning the timing of events and where they kind of plug into uh, how things have moved on in history. And so important that we understand that this is a post-exilic book. Again, I will remind you as you're reading the book of Haggai, not a bad idea to read the book of Zechariah, not a bad idea to read the book of Ezra, or to read the book of Nehemiah, because all of those are talking about the same period of time. Now, remember, uh, again by way of review, that the children of Israel, when Babylon was defeated, they were kind of the world-ruling empire for a period of about 70 years, when they were defeated, uh, the new powers that be continued to rule over and dominate uh, the Jewish people. However, they chose to do it in a different manner. And so whereas the Babylonians took them out of their land and ruled over them in a foreign land, the new leaders, the, the Medes and the Persians, they granted them permission. If you want to go back to Israel, you can go back to Israel. You'll still be subject to us there, and you'll have to pay us uh, tribute and things like that. But if you want to go back there, you can go back there. And so the opportunity was afforded to those exiles in a foreign land. We can go back to Jerusalem. We can go back to the land that God had promised to our forefathers. We can go back to that land where the temple once stood and where we worshiped our God and, and all of these ideas. They could go back there. And as we pointed out in our last study, the overwhelming majority of people said, Jewish people said, we're okay here. We'll stay here in exile rather than go back to that land of promise. Because remember, that land was destroyed that land lay in ruins for 70 years. That land's land laid uncultivated during all of that time. It was going to be a real challenge to go back to that land. And even though they were essentially enslaved in a foreign land, they grew comfortable in that land. And many of them, I think my wife pointed out to me, 98% of them were comfortable remaining right there. But there was that 2%. It was about 50,000 people, the book of Ezra tells us. There was about 50,000 that said, hey, look, if God's in it, I want to be in it too. Sign me up. When's the bus leave? And 50,000 of them returned to Jerusalem. These get, again, I refer to them as sort of the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. 
These were those that were on fire for God, and it didn't matter what it was going to personally cost them. Sign me up. I'm in. And they went back to the land, these on-fire men and women for God. And even though they knew that the times were going to be difficult, and even though they knew that it was going to be challenged, and even though they knew it was going to be uncomfortable for them to go back to that land, if God was in it, that was the exact place that they wanted to be. And so they were in it, and they returned to the land. They made their way back to Jerusalem. We know the year of that, based on the year that Cyrus that Persian king gave them permission to return. We know the year of it. It was 538 B.C. And what's interesting to note is within six months of his permission granted to them to return, they returned within six months. So imagine, you know, you hear on the news, you know, this is the opportunity that is presented to you. Imagine your life being completely different six months later. Your house sold, everything packed up, your kids out of school, you know, everything different within six months. These guys got right to what it was that God was doing within them. They didn't put it off, you know, someday we'll do that. They got right to it, and they began to return, or uh, they did return. Now, you can read the book of Ezra, and I would encourage you to do so. In Ezra chapter 4, we learn that for a variety of reasons, that work stopped. So they made their all the way back to Jerusalem. They set up a little home for themselves, the things that they needed to do. And then they got busy getting ready to build the temple of God. They immediately built the altar of God where they could worship God, where the temple once stood. And then they began the process of rebuilding the temple again. According to Ezra chapter 4, that worked, however, it stopped. Now, I imagine if you ask any of them, and and read Ezra 4, by the way. I imagine if you asked any of them, they would say, no, 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 the work hasn't stopped. It's just paused. We're going to go back to it. We, you know, we just, we took a pause. We'll come back to that when life is a little more convenient. But that pause lasted 15 years. At some point, it transitions from a pause to a stop, right? So 15 years had gone by, and no additional work had been done on that particular temple. Over a decade and a half, where the once-inspired work of God sat unattended. Now, again, these are the on-fire believers for God. These aren't people that just sort of pop in here and there, and you know, you're like, I don't know if that guy's a Christian or not. You know, it, it's not that. We're talking about people that are on fire for God, and yet here we are now, 15 years later, and that stirring that God had, had done in them, is just, it has waned. Important that we notice these people didn't descend into sin. All right? They weren't worshiping idols as their forefathers had done, which caused them to leave the land. They had simply just become distracted with other things. And I think that's significant for us because the vast majority of us are probably not going to descend into some crazy, wild, sinful lifestyle. But there's a very good risk, bad risk, that we will be distracted by other things, as they were. These believers here, they put God's work on the back burner, and they started instead to begin to focus on themselves. They began to focus on their own homes. They began to focus on their own families. They began to focus on their own pursuits. And what that did, we saw this last week, is it lulled them into a sense of complacency. And the result was that they became far more focused on the here and now than on eternity. 
as they once had been. And so what does God do in those circumstances? Does he just say, fine, you don't want me, I don't need you? No, God is so good, friends. We know that. God is so good. And so what the Lord will begin, begin then to do, if they can't see it for themselves, he will then create the circumstances to cause them to see it for themselves. And that's what we see that he is going to do here in our study of the rest of chapter 1 this morning, that God in his kindness, he reminds me of that shepherd that Jesus spoke of uh, in the New Testament. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 18. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 15. You remember that shepherd? He had a 100 sheep, and one of those sheep went astray. Now, a lot of us, we would say, well, I still got 99. I ain't going out there. That sheep doesn't want to be with me. I don't need that sheep. He leaves the 99. And he goes and he finds the one because he loves us. And in his kindness, when these folks went astray, he doesn't just stop and say, well, I don't need you. He leaves the 99, so to speak, and he creates the circumstances to wake those 90, uh, that one up. And he'll do that here in the book of Haggai. In the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, those are the two prophets that God sent to his people to wake them back up once more. And so rereading a portion that we looked at last week, look at chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, Now thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the people were saying, it's, just, it's not the right time to be building God's house, yet their actions demonstrated that it was the right time to be building their own houses. You see that? It's not the right time to be building God's house, but it is the right time to be building our own. And again, I made this point last week, and I think it's pretty important. We're not just talking about the building of a basic structure that the, the family unit could, could live within. We're talking about luxurious paneled houses. That was considered a mark of luxury in that day. And then, as I pointed out, as some commentators have suggested, where it uses the word houses, it's referring to the multiple houses that each of those families owned. And so they're investing into their beach house, they're investing into their lake house, they're investing into their Florida house, and they're investing into the Jerusalem house. But we, it's not time for us to be building the house of the Lord. And Haggai comes on the scene and he speaks into that. Because again, the people had become distracted. And Haggai challenges them in the hopes of waking them. Waking them up to the lull that they have entered into. And so continuing, notice verse 5. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Ever feel like that? Yeah, I do, often. That phrase, notice the phrase, he says, consider your ways. He's going to use that phrase five times in this book. It actually becomes sort of the theme of the messages of Haggai. He challenges them to consider their ways. I notice, I, I know a number of our kids, we have those little worksheets today, and you'll notice on the cover of it, 
that it speaks there about this idea of considering your ways. It becomes a significant phrase in this book. And it's a phrase which more literally would be translated this way. It's put your heart on your roads. Consider your ways. More literally, put your heart on your roads. That idea of consider is this. It's consider where the decisions you are making in life are taking you. Where's that road taking you that your life is on? Put your heart on your roads. Where are you headed? Where is this life that you are living, where is it leading to? When you get to the end of the path that you are presently on, will that place really be where you want to be? That's what Haggai is asking them. And it's such an important set of questions for us to be asking ourselves. And truth be told, it's an important set of questions that most of us never really get around to asking ourselves. You remember the great theologian John Lennon? I'm sure some of you remember him. But he said, life is what, ha what happens when you're busy making other plans. And I think that there's, a, I don't know how much truth John Lennon said in his life. I think there's a lot of truth with that statement. Because we just get wrapped up in the flow of life and we look back and, and that was my life. But what Haggai says here is consider the path that you're on. Is it taking you to the place that you want it to be? Because we dictate where we're going to go, or we should dictate to where we're going to go in life. And that's what Haggai is saying to these individuals here. Consider the ways that you're going. Because what typically tends to happen is we get swept up in the current of life. And we just sort of go where it's going. And inevitably, we're going to end up where it is going. And so Haggai's admonition for these listeners is this. Stop and consider where the current is taking you. And make the determination, is that where you want to be when all is said and done? And so Haggai continues his, his words. He points out to us a very interesting way that God works among his people. This is a very important principle in the way that God works among his people. It starts in verse 6. He says, you have sown much and you have harvested little. You eat, but you, have, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody is warm. And you earn wages, and the one who does, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Catch those four or five points there. You've sown much farming, planting, but harvest little. You eat, but never have enough. You clothe yourselves, but you're never warm, and you earn wages just to put them into a bag that has holes in them and thus never seems to get filled. So these people here who had come back with these grand motivations, they're still working very hard, but the reality is they're really just spinning their wheels because they're not getting anywhere. And what they're discovering is no matter, and Haggai's pointing it out to them, no matter how hard they work, they just simply don't seem to be able to get ahead. And no matter what they attain, there remain, there nevertheless remains this sense of emptiness that they just don't seem to have their fill. And there's a reason for this, because this is the way, this is one of those rules in the way that God works. It's because God cannot bless self-seeking, especially so in the lives of believers. Believers who are called to not live for self, but rather, what's Jesus say? To die to self. The Lord can't bless self-seeking. And you say, well, I, I don't know about that. I know people that are self-seeking and they got all the money in the world. That may be. But is it satisfying? 
has it brought them that sense of peace that they're seeking after? Or are they continually moving on to the next thing? As you study the Gospels, you discover that Jesus spoke repeatedly to his disciples about taking up their cross. I'm sure if you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with that. And remember, please, that the cross was an instrument of death. And so Jesus repeatedly talked about taking up your cross, that instrument of death, and following him. On one occasion, Jesus said this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice that. Cannot be my disciple, he says. And again, I'll remind you that a cross was not a nice piece of jewelry that people wore around their neck to identify themselves with a movement but rather it was an instrument of death in the ancient world. And so Jesus' repeated emphasis on the idea, it makes it clear this, that if a person is going to follow Jesus, what will be expected of that person is at the very least the denial of self, the giving up of our lives spiritually, symbolically, in some cases even physically, if need be. So that denial of self, not a requirement for a select few. Uh, well, you want to be a pastor. You know, you're going to have to deny yourself to do that. You want to be a nun or something like that. You're going to have to deny yourself to do that. It's not a requirement of a select few, a special few, but it's rather the prerequisite of any that would come after Jesus in faith. And again, why? Why this emphasis on the denial of self and death to self? Because again, God cannot bless selfishness. And listen, God wants to bless his people. His desire for us is a sense of satisfaction, a sense of peace, a sense of fulfillment. That's what God wants for every single one of us. That's his blessing that he wants each one of us to enjoy. And contrary to what the world thinks, and I think even what many Christians think, that peace and that satisfaction, what the Bible calls life, abundant life it refers to it as, it doesn't come from preserving our own pursuits, but rather from pursuing his pursuits. So again, to quote Jesus the second time, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Next verse says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find life. True life, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, is never and can never be found in chasing after our own pursuits. Because true life, again, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, all those things that, man, I would love to have, all of those things, it only comes when we give our lives away in pursuit of him. And these believers here, this is the early part of the 500s B.C., or the late part of the 500s B.C., these believers had lost sight of that. There was a time when they knew that. There was a time when they eagerly pursued the things of God and the workings of God, but very slowly, not immediately, almost certainly, but very, very slowly as time passed in their lives, they began to go after their own pursuits instead of God's, and the result is where we find them now in our study of the book of Haggai. And so Haggai says to them, consider your ways, consider the path that you are on, and not only that, but consider where that path is taking you. 
He's saying to them essentially, how is the pursuit of self and selfish desires, how's that working out for you? Are you discovering it to be everything that you hoped it would be? Are you finding the peace, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that you were hoping those pursuits would bring? And as we see, the reality is they had not. That's what verse 6 is stressing. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have, you fill, you clothe yourself, but nobody is warm. You have bags and you're loading money into it. And every time you go back and you look in, there's not much in there at all. What they were really trying to satisfy in their lives is the same thing that every one of us, here in this room, outside in our communities, anywhere in the world, at any time in the history of the world, what they were really seeking after is what everybody is seeking after. And that is somehow to fill that void that is within them, with that peace, that satisfaction, that fulfillment. fulfillment. And that void, it is, as it's been said, it is a God-shaped void, that only void, that only God can fill. Money can't fill it. Success can't fill it. Possessions can't fill it. And even people can't fill that void. Only God at the center of our lives can fill that void. And these folks here in Haggai's day, they had God in their lives, but he was no longer the center of their lives. The center of their lives had become their own pursuits. Thus that void remains. And Haggai says, consider your ways. Is your life really going down the path that you want it to go down? He continues in verse 7. Again, he's going to say, consider your ways. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Consider your ways. Notice he says that, consider your ways, but notice he also calls them to a plan of action. Verse 8, he says, go up to the hills, bring the wood down, and so on. That's what they're going to use to build the house. So his solution to their inaction, as it pertains to the things of God, is for them to start doing once more those things that they had previously given themselves to. It reminds me in the book of Revelation. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and return to that place that you had once been. His solution to their inaction is to start doing once more those things that they had previously given themselves to. Notice this, God sent leanness into their lives. We just don't seem to have enough. It's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying us. Everything we think we're going to gain by pouring ourselves into these things, we don't. God sends leanness into their lives for the purpose of bringing them to their senses. And then the solution was not for them to remain in that place. I think this is so important. And so God doesn't lay this on their hearts and say, now sit there and wallow in that. He lays this on their hearts to wake them up to return from that place. 
to get back to those things that would truly give them that sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment that they were looking for. And again, what was that? It was giving of themselves away to the things of God. God's solution is for the people once more to give themselves, not to those things that brought them or they thought would bring them pleasure, but rather to those things that would bring the Lord pleasure. Live their lives in such a way. Look at verse 7. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and, and build the house. Notice that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. And so for 15 years, they had concerned themselves with pleasing themselves, with glorifying themselves. It became sort of this competition who had the bigger house, who had the nicer house, who had the fancier house glorifying themselves. Now God tells them, look, it's time for you once more to focus your efforts on pleasing me and glorifying me because nothing fills that God-shaped void in our life except putting him first in our lives. And because God knows that, he calls them back to that. Please notice this about the difficulties they were experiencing. It says in verse 10 that it's God who brought those difficulties into their lives. It was God that caused their crops not to grow. It was God that caused, that chose to withhold the rain and the morning dew, which would have produced uh, the produce in that community there. So it says, therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Look at verse 11. We see there that it was the Lord that called for a drought on the land and the hills. Now, the reason why I draw your attention to this is because it's not hard for me to imagine that many in the land attributed these difficulties to an attack of Satan. Well, Satan is attacking us. He's not, you know, the rain's not coming and our harvest isn't growing and all of these things. And to blame it, if you will, on Satan. And the reality that we see here is it wasn't Satan at all, but rather it was the Lord's doing that they're crops weren't producing and the rain wasn't falling and the dew wasn't present and thus they didn't have everything they were hoping to have. And so what that tells me is that among the possible reasons for the difficulties that might come my way in this life, at least one of the possible causes might be the Lord himself. Now certainly Satan could be the cause of such difficulties. We see that for instance in the book of Job. As Satan enters in, he brings these difficulties into Job's life, hopeful for him, hopefully for the purpose of Job cursing God. And so certainly Satan could be the cause of some of the difficulties. And sometimes in our lives, difficulties come just because we live in a fallen world. And you know, there's the thorns on the ground, and it hinders my ability to do what I want to do. Sometimes it's just that we live in a fallen world. But what this passage is telling us is that sometimes those difficulties are the result of God intervening to allow those difficulties for the purpose of waking me up. And so the next time when it seems that the blessing of God is missing on your life, and I'll give you an example, when you have the flat tire and you get through it and you were just praising God in it, and then you get home and the refrigerator is broken and you're thinking, it's okay, Lord, I love you still. And then you go down into the basement and the washing machine has overflowed, and it just seems one thing after the other after the other, 
And for some of us, it's two or three things. Others of us, it's seven or eight things. But eventually, we all lose it. And that's it. I'm done. Sometimes when it feels like the blessing of God is missing, it's a good opportunity for you to just pull back and say, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Is there a reason why you're allowing all of these things? And maybe the Lord will say, no, you're doing great. You keep it up. Unless you just yelled and cursed or whatever. But he said, no, you're doing great. You're just living in a fallen world, Greg. And I, you should have gotten a new washer a long time ago or whatever. But a good question to be asking is, God, are you trying to get my attention? God, have, you allowed, have I allowed myself to get off track? And are you trying to use this to get me to consider my ways once again so that I can get back on track? Because sometimes, as we see here, it very well may be the Lord seeking to call you back to himself, seeking to wake you up from that spiritual lull, that stupor that you have allowed yourself to enter into. Well, the book continues, Haggai continues, and he's going to tell us how the people responded. Look at verse 12. It says, Now then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah. And he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And it was on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Now, that little section, it begins by referencing Zerubbabel and Joshua. I'll remind you, we were introduced to those two men in our last study. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, we see he was the political leader of this group of people. He was the governor of Jerusalem. We see that Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, we're even told it here, was the spiritual leader. He was the high priest of the people. Look back at verse 1 for a moment. If you scan back to verse 1, you'll see both of their names are mentioned there. And what we discover is they were actually the ones that Haggai is addressing with this prophecy. And so it says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. These two leaders they're the ones that received the prophecy. And what we see now at the end of the chapter is that they took that word of exhortation and they did what they should have been doing for many years. They obeyed it. And then they led the people that God had put them in charge of. It says down in verse 12, it says that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And then as is implied in the final phrase of that verse, they led the people. And they led them in such a way to cause the people to respond in obedience themselves. It says there, and the people feared the Lord. And so if you are a leader in some way, here's a little lesson we can apply to our lives. Maybe you lead in your home. You've got kids that are looking up to you, your family. Perhaps you lead here at this church. Maybe you lead at your place of business in a grand scale or a smaller scale. Don't miss this. The nation's obedience began when it's, it began in, I should say, its leadership structure. 
So you're wondering why the whole organization isn't obeying the things of the Lord or moving in that particular direction. We see here the nation's obedience began within its leadership structure. And so it was as the leadership began to obey that the general population began to obey as well. So this sermon of Haggai isn't really a sermon for the, the entire group of people. It was primarily a sermon for the highest leaders of the people. And then as those leaders began to respond, the rest of the nation began to follow suit as well. Notice they did so immediately. They did so right away. Look at verse 14. Actually, verse 15. It's, well, verse 14. They came, they worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. All right, so 24th day, sixth month, second year of this particular king. Go back to verse 1 for a second, where this all began. It says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Here now in verse 15, we're talking about the 24th day of the month. They got right to it. That's the point. God had once more done a stirring work in the hearts of his people. Remember, that's what Ezra, the book of Ezra told us as it explained how the people returned. God had done a stirring work in them then. He had once more done a stirring work. We just saw that in verse 14. He stirred Zerubbabel. He stirred Joshua. He stirred the people. God is once more doing that stirring work, and the people get right to work responding to that stirring. That's very, very important. They don't put it off. They don't put off what God is telling them, calling them to do today. They get to it today, essentially, less, three weeks later. And I think that might be the most important thing that we can learn from our book, our study of this book today. And that is this. If God is calling you to do something, get started doing it right away. What we so often do is put off to another day what God is calling us to undertake today. And we, we make a plan to begin maybe next week, Monday morning. I'm going to do it. Or we make a plan maybe next school year. I used to be a teacher, so I think in school years. All right, next school year, I'm going to do this. Or next January 1st, this is going to be my resolution. We decide today for two months from now. Or we say things like this. You know, when the kids get out of elementary school and I have a little more time, I'm going to start to do this. Or when they get out of the house. Or when I retire, and we come up with all of these plans of when we're going to do what God is calling us to do. I'll just say this. If God is calling you to do it, start it immediately. And don't put it off to another day. Because when God stirs, we need to respond to that stirring. And listen, I've ignored the stirring of God enough in my life to know that it's gonna, the feeling's going to go away soon enough. If I delay long enough. And God is kind. He'll come back to me. You ever talked about this like six months ago? I noticed you forgot to do anything about it. And he starts dealing with me again about that issue. But when God stirs, we need to respond to that stirring. Because if we put off responding, soon a week becomes a month, which becomes a year, which becomes five years. And if God has been impressing something upon your heart, respond right away. To that stirring. These guys here, it was just 23 days later. And that includes the time it took to go get all this wood up in the hills and get it back there and start the building process, which indicates that they got started even earlier than 23 days. They gathered their materials, 
they got themselves organized, and they began to do once more that which they had begun 15 years earlier. The question then is, why wait any longer? If God is stirring, why wait any longer? Here we have the 24th day, and the people are back. And so here's what I wonder today. I wonder, and so they could look back, when did you guys start building this thing? I remember the day. It was the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius. That's when we all got serious about what God was calling us to do, and we did it. I wonder, today is October 30th, 2022, and I wonder if this particular day could be a similar day in your life, where you could look back a year from now, months from now, whatever it might be, and say, man, when did this start happening in your life? I remember the day. It was October 30th, 2022. And I was reading the book of Haggai, and I was learning about what was going on with those guys. And God used that to speak to my heart about something he wanted to do in my life. And on that day, I determined I'm doing it. October 30th, 2022. That day in your life that you can look back on is the day that you responded to God's leading about an area of your life. That day that you, de- de- that you determined you weren't just going to be moved. And I, that, was, that was important, what God was doing in me. I was really moved by that today. You weren't just going to be moved. You weren't just going to be stirred, but you were going to be stirred to action, moved to action. You were actually going to respond to it. There's a psalm that is quoted a number of times in the New Testament, and we quote it a number of times in our interactions with one another, and it's a very important psalm. It says this, Today, if you hear God's voice, harden not your heart. The idea, respond. And so I want to encourage you in that. I don't, I don't tend to give all kinds of examples to try and like, get into your minds or whatever because I believe the Holy Spirit can do that much more effectively than I can. And what will happen if I list off seven examples of what God wants to do in your life, I'll miss yours, and you'll be like, ah, it's not the Lord. He doesn't want me to do that. <laughs> so we'll just let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit is going to do. If God has been moving in your heart in such a way about an area that he's been talking to you and you've been pushing it aside or maybe he spoke to you in a very powerful way at another point in time in your life. You started it, you paused it, and 15 years have gone by and you haven't gone back to it. Maybe the Lord wants you to go back to it today. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not thine heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we appreciate the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I imagine when the disciples uh, sat with you, they met with you, you taught them, you interacted with them, you challenged them. And Lord, when your physical presence was no longer with them, as we do not enjoy your physical presence, Lord, you gave them the gift of your Holy Spirit as you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. And you teach us, you guide us, you direct us, you challenge us, you minister to us, you probe, you draw us, you work. And we're so incredibly grateful for that, Lord. You desire good things for your children. And where the world might define that as riches and wealth and popularity and success and all these things, we know Lord, you define it as abundant life in the here and now. Peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, a sense of purpose. Relationship with the God who created us. 
And Lord, you know our tendency is to, for our eyes to kind of lower from heaven to the things around us, to get enamored by the things around us and distracted by the things around us. And soon we're spinning our wheels trying to attain something that you've never created us to attain in the temporal. And so, Lord, our desire is to hear what you're trying to whisper into each one of our individual lives this morning. May I ask for you to bless the going forth of your word.